1: All right, this week, we have Daniel Shirell on the show. He's a climate movement organizer, currently campaign director of the Climate Jobs National Resource Center, where he's working with the American labor movement to tackle the climate crisis, reverse income inequality, and win millions of unionized clean energy jobs. This is
0: Daniel Shirell, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm going to read a little excerpt from my book, Warmth coming of age at the end of our world. When I was seven, we caught a salamander in the stream near our house. The stream crept unnoticed through the verges of our neighborhood, descending inexorably toward the polluted river. To find it, you had to walk to the end of our block, where a yellow sign with a double-headed arrow indicated each of the two directions you could go. If you ignored the sign, which on that day we did, and ducked under the fence behind it, you arrived at a trickle of a creek that disappeared quickly into the mouth of a corrugated iron drain pipe. My sister and I were fixated on the idea that something lived in this creek, and begged our babysitter to investigate with us. We found a small net and bucket in the basement, and climb down through the bushes out of sight of our house. The babysitter dipped the net in and out of the water, while my sister and I crouched on the banks, clenching our fists in anticipation. Our legs had started to cramp and prickle by the time the babysitter pulled up, to his surprise and ours, a small brown salamander. It wriggled vigorously in the net and in our excitement we imitated its panicked, gleeful little dance. We went about collecting water and stones from the creek, and at home we placed these and the salamander in a large Tupperware with a lid we'd punched full of air holes. The whole habitat was displayed proudly on the front table next to the Shabbos candles. Then the salamander disappeared. Looking through the sides of the Tupperware, we could detect no movement. The salamander could have been any one of the tongues of mud pressed between the stones. This went on for several days, my sister and I checking and rechecking the Tupperware, waiting for some event to confirm the existence of the thing we knew we had caught. The salamander waited us out, denying us the satisfaction, venturing not even a flick of its tail. I asked my mother why the salamander wouldn't move, and she told me, Quite reasonably, I thought, that since we'd put it next to the Shabbos candles, the salamander was napping. It thinks every day is a day of rest, she said. When Friday night did come, the candle flames cast slithering, amphibious shadows all over the stagnant tub. At last, we relented and brought the Tupperware back to the creek. I held the container at an angle in the water, and my sister peeled off the lid. And though we emptied all of its contents, we never saw the salamander leave. Just a cloud of mud, and then the creek as it was. As I grew older, I came to understand that this was not a fluke. Disappear was what animals did. My relationship to them, to the extent that it existed at all, was strung together from glimpses, the sudden seconds before they darted into a bush, or scurried to the back of an enclosure. This was hard for me to take, especially as a child. Weaned as I was on Disney, where animals could be your sidekick or your nemesis, your best friend or your comic relief, I was surprised to learn that the denizens of the New Jersey woods wanted nothing to do with me. On those first hikes, I remember feeling like a pariah, chipmunks and deer sprinting through the undergrowth to get away from me. They would always freeze for a second first, bodies tensed, eyeballs swimming in their heads, before beating their abrupt retreat, leaving me squinting after them into the trees. The only way to prevent it, I found, was to stand still and make almost no noise, to pretend, in essence, that I wasn't there at all. By the time I entered middle school, this was no longer cause for much surprise. By then, I had undergone the predictable loss of innocence that I assume befell many of the children who came of age in the waning decades of the 20th century. The realization, specifically, that all the fantastic animals we'd learned about in science class, the ones we'd penciled in in our coloring books, the pandas and jaguars, the orangutans and the elephants, were being wiped off the face of the planet. That their rainforests were burning, their savannas were being cropped, and that we were the agents of this extermination. In this light, it made abundant sense to me that most animals, even the more prosaic species of New Jersey, would do everything in their power to avoid us. I began to feel rueful every time I encountered so much as a squirrel or a sparrow, as if their scurrying retreats were more than just an instinctual response. As if it was all, in fact, a very deliberate snubbing, an animal kingdom-wide pact to shun the humans in protest of what we'd done, and in fear of what we might still do. Later, I learned the precise scope of our obliteration. Humanity, or more specifically, That blinkered strain of economic thought that had transformed all ecosystems into resources to be harvested or paved over, had triggered the sixth mass extinction since the advent of biological life. This was a deeper kind of disappearance. Die-off rates were a thousand times above normal, and dozens of species, entire species, were being snuffed out every day punching holes in my picture of the planet. I felt aware every time I got into bed that I'd lost an irretrievable opportunity to witness a whole host of creatures that I hadn't even known existed, and that the same thing would happen tomorrow and the next day, and so on into infinity. This made me feel very sad, though at the same time I took it in stride. The avenues available to me for learning about the non-human world outlets like National Geographic and Animal Planet, were always focusing on the last remaining remaining X, X, or an extremely rare Y, Y. Y. though their coverage was usually meant to promote conservation. The message I took away was that I should avoid getting too excited about the Javan rhinoceros or the silky Sifaka, as I'd likely never see one, and there might soon be none left to see. Implicit in all of this, was an equation of scarcity, which I internalized early on. The more remarkable an animal, the likelier it was to vanish. This was unsurprising to me, probably because I'd already osmosed a similar lesson growing up under late capitalism, that scarcity produced value, and vice versa. So although it was sad, it made sense to me that Java and were disappearing. They were too good, to last, too, good to last. too good to last. And this seemed less a consequence of the problem than a guiding principle of the world. Now I look at the sheer number of extinctions, and they appear to pretend the end of the world. Though this isn't how the problem works exactly. The problem doesn't operate at the level of the whole world, which anyway can't be reduced to a singular thing, a story to be concluded climactically and all at once. It finds its traction instead in the smaller worlds, the subworlds, A system of brackish creeks draped in mangrove, a narrow band of dwarf spruce huddled just below treeline, the heady two weeks between the birth of a bee and the wilt of a small red flower that only it can pollinate. Worlds that often pass beneath our notice, but which have, for millennia, made up the absolute outer boundaries of subjective experience for the many other species with whom we share our planet. These are the worlds that the problem is ending, blinking out one by one in messy, staggered succession. Like most people, I've grown accustomed to these blinkings, and am now almost completely numbed by statistics on extinction and biodiversity loss. They shocked me as a child, but I can no longer fathom they were cruel, cannot make them mean anything. What I'll sometimes try to do is inhabit a single example, an apocalypse in miniature, Recently, for instance, the snow that once blanketed the Alps you can see it in the upper right-hand corner of Bruegel's painting softening the peaks beyond the town, has begun to melt drastically, even in winter. I've read that there is a species of hare living in these mountains that has evolved to turn its coat white in the winter as a form of camouflage. When Bruegel sat down in 1565 to paint hunters in the snow, dozens of these hares might have been nosing their way across the scene, entirely invisible to him. I imagine them traversing an environment of simple slopes and plains, padding across fragile crusts of snow, squeezing down blind tunnels lit by a cold sun filtered through ice. Theirs is a glittering muffled world where every sound is both faint and pronounced, like a single stroke on a blank canvas. All movement here is dangerous, so they try to stay frozen, an immobility belied only by breath, discernible in the slight lift and sigh of the fur on their haunches. What food there is they exhume from beneath the snowbanks, small portions of freezing grass shattered down the throat. Centuries pass this way, silent, furtive, white on white. Then the whole world, the high white world that lent them its color, begins to break into pieces. The snow comes, but it doesn't last, melting first on the meadows, then receding to the divots and trenches of the mountain. What had once been a single expanse of camouflage is suddenly a chain of disconnected islands, each of them steadily shrinking. And against the bare ground, the hares stand out like targets. It's as if the mountain, once their safeguard, has betrayed them, disclosing the secret of their vulnerability. Dressed for a world that no longer exists, the hares dart between the remaining drifts. Paws crunching on gravel and splashing through puddles of snowmelt. Everything is muddy and coarse now. In this photo-negative country, the wolves devour the hares, snatching them from the mud in a frenzy, too full to keep eating. Perhaps in the shocking ease of the hunt, even the predators sense that something is off, that the feast can't last, that as the hares begin to disappear, so too will they, for the simple reason that the same snow protecting the hares from their hunters has protected the hunters from their own appetites. In the wake of this localized apocalypse, the hares' world would grow truly unrecognizable, warm, empty, devoid of both safety and danger though from Bruegel's vantage it would look more or less the same scenic and remote maybe just a shade browner there is a near endless supply of these examples in the cloud forests of Costa Rica the heat pushes a certain species of tree frog up the slopes of the mountains they climb higher and higher in search of cooler temperatures but the elevation runs out and the temperatures keep rising. In my head, I picture these frogs poised on the highest branches of the tallest trees, stranded on their dwindling peaks. How their skin would slowly dry to a husk, pulling their mouths open and their eyes wide, ossifying them into gargoyles. Or conversely, I picture the pine forests of Vermont, where warming winters are unveiling new territory, allowing ticks to push northward. Ticks being, along with disease-bearing mosquitoes, one of the few species I've ever read about benefiting from the problem, which lends an eerie sense that there is something inherently pestilential about it, that it doesn't simply adhere to the cascading rules of physics, but is additionally propelled by something deliberate and retributive, like a biblical plague. In increasingly large numbers, the ticks crawl through the tall grass, attaching themselves to moose and boring into their hides. I've read about a dead moose found with 90,000 ticks on its body. I've read that some moose scratch so hard in an attempt to be rid of the itching that they rub parts of their skin off on the trees. Their numbers have shrunk dramatically in recent years, felled by infections and blood loss, so that their likenesses, still stamped into maple candies and emblazoned on postcards across Vermont, are increasingly tinged with nostalgia, as if every souvenir were a little memorial. Even as I picture them, though, as if every souvenir were a little memorial. I am wary of the way these stories are deployed, how they are passed around like a form of currency, a tender of loss. I know there is a long history of environmentalists using charismatic animals on the brink to pluck the heartstrings of their mostly white, middle-class donor bases, and that these appeals have often subsumed or replaced the voices of millions of poor people at risk from the problem but I also can't dismiss them entirely. To me, these stories have a meaning deeper than fundraising, deeper even than sadness. Like that scene in a movie where all the pigeons fly away before an earthquake, or where the rats dash down the drain pipes before a big flood. I think these are fundamentally stories about fear, about being left alone in a dangerous place though they are often packaged safely into bite-sized tragedies. Taken as a whole, they look more like a jittery, collectivized unease, a vague inkling that we're being abandoned on an increasingly empty planet. In a way, this is good. We are long past the point where we should be putting starving polar bears on wall calendars, pitying them like their fate has no relation to ours. The rhetoric of trying to protect animals serves only to imply their expendability, casting them as fragile, aestheticized treasures, so we can avoid seeing them for the bellwethers they really are, less worthy of pity than of panic. Now when I read about extinction, this is something I try to hold on to, that in every regrettable loss, there is a seed of paranoia that at some point, their disappearance may start to feel like a desertion.
1: There's still more story ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Daniel Shirell, and he's reading from his book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of the World.
0: It was almost two years before the United States withdrew from the treaty. By then, Trump had been elected with a minority of votes and was systematically destroying all attempts to contain the hyperobject. Like a hijacker who'd wrested the controls from the pilot and was flying the plane straight into the ground except with many many more lives at stake as with everything he did his utmost to turn the withdrawal into a raiding spectacular building suspense for weeks by hinting at various courses of action before finally announcing in a televised address suggestive of a season finale on the darkest reality tv show in the world that he would be withdrawing completely. When the announcement was made, I was up in Buffalo, meeting with several coalition organizers, among them the friend whose grandmother had been killed during Hurricane Maria. The announcement was playing on mute in one corner of their office, but no one could bring themselves to watch. On screen, Trump looked smug and bored. Pruitt stood behind him like a mannequin, cinched up into his tie. As soon as the speech began, my friend walked out of the room. I caught the first few minutes, then turned back to my pile of email, only reading the transcript once it was over. I could feel the farce congealing over the tragedy, numbing it down. I decided to take a walk around the block to see if I could cry. I came upon the lot of a small church, deserted on a Thursday and sat down on one of the concrete strips bordering a parking spot. My sadness felt more like dizziness, the fate of the world swinging wildly back and forth, while my own life got meted out in days, one after another, effectively unchanged. Here was solid concrete, warm weather, a white steeple, the oblivious rectitude of the moment. I wanted in that instance to tear it all to shreds, to get out of it for even a second. I took out my phone and decided to call my father. Since high school, we'd begun to talk more openly about the problem. It was no longer just a subject of his research. It was all over the news. And this somehow made him more capable of talking about it. As if mounting public alarm lent him a framework through which to feel the facts he'd helped produce. He picked up on the first ring, as he often does when I call. He was angry, he told me, livid, though his voice sounded like this was something he was still trying to muster. I loved him so much then, the way he sought to transcend his natural gentleness, will himself into indignation, loved him because he tried, loved him because he couldn't. I wish I could feel angry, I told him, All I feel right now is sad. And then, like I'd issued a summons, the tears arrived and I was not in control of them anymore. They were just falling down my face, wetting the screen of the phone. Along one fence of the parking lot was a flowering hydrangea bush, and I began plucking its leaves and blowing my nose into them, dabbing my eyes with a sleeve. For a moment I felt like I was eight years old again, crying to my father in disbelief like I was reliving that conversation we'd perhaps never had. But even as I experienced it, even as the force of it made me sit down and slump against the fence, a part of me was already bored with my grief. It felt repetitive and dull, an exact replay of my reaction to melancholia and to Hurricane Sandy and to all the other moments when the weight of the hyperobject had ruptured the strength of my resolve. It was like the problem had placed my emotions on an endless tape loop. And they were going to keep playing back at me forever in the same notes, the same sequence. With this feeling came the equally predictable guilt of having never occupied a position of real vulnerability to the problem. Like if your father killed himself after another crop failure or a hurricane shredded the house where you'd grown up. The guilt exhausted me Doubly so because I suspected its actual purpose was to exercise the dissonance of privilege by effecting a moral catharsis that would mean absolutely nothing to anyone beyond myself. Sitting there in the church parking lot, it was like my whole life was being stretched out in front of me, just one long sinusoid of elation and despair, an infinite rerun of whatever I'd already felt.
1: Maybe this will have the opposite
0: effect. Maybe all the other countries will rally around it now and make the accord even stronger. I think you should still have hope. I do have hope, I told him. And it was true. I felt it like a sliver in my side, pulsing there, baiting my breath in defiance of my brain. Sometimes I wished I could extract it, and let the wound bleed and heal until I didn't feel anything there anymore. Didn't have anything I had to attend to. But hope possessed me with a terrible vigilance. Even after the worst news, it made my heart bounce back like a reflex, no less exhausting that it was automatic. I do have hope, I said again, and we both sat silently there on the phone, like we were waiting to see if it would hold. It was June and the sun was shining hot on my shoulders. I pictured the tiny photons like dust motes, trillions of them glancing off of me, sifting through the weave of my shirt and falling into the forest of my hair. They were almost nothing, I knew, nearly massless plinking into everything, always, 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 always. And yet this was the crux. This was what we were all litigating. The sunlight itself, and how much of it would be trapped here with us. I shouldn't have, but I felt then for a moment like it was all very simple. Beneath the text of the treaties, and the crack of the gavel, and the ever-bobbing derricks, There was just a density of sunlight, a single question. It was all so clear. The problem could be seen was in fact the means by which we saw. And from out of this thought came hope, seeping back into me, unbidden and indomitable. Or maybe that's not where it came from. Maybe it was just a beautiful day, and I was out for a walk in a quiet neighborhood. Maybe it was just spring. The thing is, I never quite knew its provenance. It would just always come back, offering its hand, saying, trust me. And once again, I'd take it, feeling tired, but a little thrilled. It came back, I'd think. Even after all this, it came back.
1: story coming. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Daniel Sherell, and he's reading from his book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of the World.
0: At night, I lay in bed and it was like I was being pressed into the earth, flattened against its skin. I counted my breath in tens, pushing my lungs up toward the dark and then letting them fall back into my ribs. When I finally drifted off to sleep, I dreamed that I was boarding a train at the center of the planet, its tracks radiating outward into space. The journey began in the tunnel dark of the core, silent but for the click of the tracks. After a while, the train emerged into the hot light of the mantle, and we chugged through it for hours, a monotony of rock and flame, all of it melting and crystallizing and remelting, like we were passing through the guts of a lava lamp. Days seemed to go by this way with nothing to see, barely a hint that we were even moving. In the dream, I watched myself fall asleep in my berth, my head smudging against the window, my hands falling limp in my lap. And in the middle of this ill-timed nap, it happened. The sudden appearance of tree roots and basements, the eruption into sunlight, the forests and the waves and the billions of gangly creatures scuttling down streets and over seabeds, beating their arcs through the air. In a flash, I watched the train shoot past the golden stupa, past the pines, past a sleeping figure lumped beneath a quilt in an unlit room. Then, in a few moments, a long blink, it was all behind us. I watched my dream self wake up much later, again into a darkness, this one emptier, airier than the core, and realized with a pang that he had missed it all, that he was unaware there'd been anything else to see besides scorching heat or crushing cold, or that, even if he had caught a glimpse, he'd soon be compelled to dismiss the thin pellicle as something fleeting and forgettable, a strange and tiny exception to the suffocating default out his window, a night into which the train would plummet for years, maybe forever. When I actually woke up, it was dark in my room. The wind was at the windows, and the sun was still hours from the horizon. For a moment I felt wildly exposed, lying there on the exact surface of the planet, suspended precariously in the critical zone between abysses. And it struck me that I'd only ever have a tree's worth of space, roots to crown, give or take, in which to raise high the roof beam and lower down the coffin and conduct all the affairs that might reasonably be said to comprise a life. The thought frightened me and I spent the rest of the night taking shallow breaths under my quilt trying not to do anything that might disturb the delicate envelope between ground and sky
1: into which I had been sealed. Thank you to Daniel Shirell for reading. You can purchase a copy of his book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of the World, available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to Veronica Goldstein of Fletcher & Company, Bell Banton, our friends at Penguin Random House. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. This episode's editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can tweet at me directly, at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday.